1: Miriam is our guest this week on Money Tales. In her 20s, Diana felt like she was wasting her privilege. She was an educated white woman in a first world country with a good job. Yet Diana was living paycheck to paycheck and running up a mound of debt. She decided something had to change. Diana made a mindset shift and became a super saver. She got creative and resourceful about meeting her needs and developed a brand new relationship with money. Today, Diana is the founder of the Economy Conference, a party about money designed specifically for the financial independence retire early movement known as FIRE. She's also the host of the popular podcast, Optimal Finance, where she narrates articles from the best personal finance blogs on the planet.
2: Here are three key money topics Diana hits on in this conversation. First, why it's crucial to focus on the gap between income and expenses because that's where you build your wealth. Second, why it's important to deconstruct some of those ingrained beliefs about money from your childhood if they aren't working for you. And third, what it was like to build new money habits that allow her to live below her means. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, onto our conversation with Diana Merriam. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Kami Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. Cammy, I wanted to share with you a conversation I had last week about money with a group of women. They were Mm. all female founders and I was invited by a group that hosts them in conversation once a month to participate in one of their meetings and talk about the importance of talking about money. And of course we did that by talking about money.
1: Oh, I love this, Sandy, because I'm sure founders talk about money, but really in their business every day and maybe not think about it from the personal standpoint. That's
2: right. We were able to go back and forth between personal business, business personal, because there is so much interchange there. We observed that many of the same drivers of productive personal money conversations also drive our business conversations. So really getting into our core values, our mission and purpose, and the goals that we're trying to achieve. There are Probably 14 women who participated. We had group conversation. We split up into pairs and had one-on-one conversation so we could really practice our listening skills, which is such a big part of having productive money conversations. And there are a lot of ahas and connections drawn, including a question of, well, why are we having this conversation? Why do we as women need to have someone facilitate our money conversations? Why aren't we having them ourselves? So-
1: wow. I love that someone asked that. What
2: a great prompt to say, yeah, you're right. Let's do more of this. That's right. It was fun. We kind of ran out of time. People really enjoy talking (laughs) on the topic of money.
1: Sandy, that's great. I hope we get a chance to do more of those public events and get people practicing. I love the breakouts that you did because it's so easy to sit and listen. And then when you go try and implement, you realize, oh, this is maybe easier than I thought or harder than I thought. Exactly. Let's see if our guest today has any thoughts on this. Diana Merriam, welcome to the Money Tales podcast. Well,
0: thanks so much for having me.
1: Would you introduce yourself and share a couple of pivotal moments in your life that really impacted who you are today?
0: Sure. So I'm Diana Merriam, and I spent most of my 20s financially illiterate, like a lot of us. (laughs) And I discovered the fire movement at 28 years old. And it really was a pivotal moment for me. I was so focused on my career in my 20s and climbing the ladder and increasing my income. And this aha moment happened when I was trying to educate myself about money and dig out of the 30 grand of debt that I discovered I was in for absolutely no reason, just living beyond my means. And it really was a slap in the face that I realized that I had been chasing income. But what's even more important than growing my income was paying attention to the gap between my income and expenses. That is where wealth is built. And I did not know that. I just thought if I made more money, it would solve all of my problems. So that really set me on this journey of getting out of that 30 grand of debt in 11 months. And then from there, I started saving and investing about 60% of my income and I retired from my corporate career at 33 years old. Wow. Diana, that's fantastic. We've talked a little bit about the FIRE movement. I was
1: wondering if you could just define it really quickly for
0: Absolutely. us. Absolutely. So it's Financial Independence Retire Early. And it's really a lifestyle movement with the goal of financial freedom. I like to think of it as financial literacy on steroids because we're doing nothing different from what everyone should be doing in terms of money management. We're just being aggressive about it. So if you talk to most financial advisors, they're going to tell you to save, depending on your age, anywhere from like 10 to 20% of your income. I was saving 60%. I wasn't investing it in any... like very special way. I was throwing it into index funds. I was fully funding my retirement accounts and throwing the rest into an after-tax brokerage. I ended up investing in my own business, but I wasn't doing anything special. It's just that the my investing rate and my savings rate was much higher than norm. And so you just end up getting there faster simply because you're throwing more money at it. So when I
2: hear you speak and others, I always want to say that you're Catching fire, because it sounds so exciting, but I think that might have a different implication. (laughs) Diana, tell us about your younger years. What was it like growing up in your household, specifically around money? My mom was the breadwinner,
0: and I had a stay-at-home dad that unfortunately passed away when I was two. And so my mom was the breadwinner, and then all of a sudden she finds herself being a single mom. And she grew up at a time where her father expected her to get married and find a man to take care of her and did not support her going to college and fending for herself kind of thing. And I think that was a very formative thing for my mom. She very much rebelled against that. And so me, especially as a girl, I have a brother and I don't think she harped on him as much about this. But she really drilled into my brain that you never, ever let a man take care of you. And that was a very formative thing for me. And it really sparked a lot of independence. And I think it really contributed to me being so career focused and being so independent in my adult life. And that's wonderful. I also think it creates some challenges because now I'm partnered up I'm getting married next year.
1: Oh, congratulations.
0: Thank you. I've got to figure out and I'm still working through it. And it's taking some time to figure out how to deconstruct some of those ingrained beliefs and how they apply to my life now, because now I'm working on a true partnership. And when I first met my man, my Midwestern gentleman, as I like to call him, I was making twice as much income as him. And I had double the assets, And I still have double the assets, but now we've switched roles and he's making twice as much income as me. And it's possible that through our marriage, we're going to switch spots on that. And we're going to support each other in pursuing different things in our lives and different sources of income and exploring our freedom. And so to have this fierce independence of I have to contribute 50% or more, I have to be the breadwinner could be limiting in our life together. And so I'm starting to deconstruct that, but I also don't have any regrets and I don't think my mom did me wrong in any way. I think that it was amazing for her to instill that sense of, I need to be responsible for myself.
1: You mentioned that you, in your 20s, were financially illiterate. Mm -hmm. Yet you have this mom really emphasizing this importance of taking care of yourself. Where did the financial knowledge come from?
0: Well, it wasn't from her, unfortunately. She really encouraged me to make money, but she never taught me anything about money management. And I don't know how much honestly that she knew herself. I mean, she did obviously have to manage her own money. And we grew up in a very poor town. It was a one square mile Abbott district in New Jersey. So Abbott district means that most of our funding for the school system came from the state because the property taxes wouldn't be able to pay for it because it was such a low income town. And it was a very small school. I think there were like 500 kids in my school. And so we were kind of well to do in this small poor town. So I knew that we were okay financially, but my mom was not very open about explaining investing and money management and managing debt. I didn't know anything about compound interest and how that works with debt and how dangerous it is to take on loans and all of that kind of stuff. Like it was just very silent. It was just very, if you just make more money, it will be okay. Kind of thing. I had to really learn that on my own at 28 years old after I made a ton of mistakes and discovered the fire movement.
2: Tell us about that discovery and learning about money and creating wealth. You shared about how it shifted your habits about money, but how did it shift your mindset?
0: So where it started was I was 28, that 30th birthday was looming. And I think 30 is a very pivotal birthday where you're like, what the
2: hell am I doing with my life? (laughs) Just one of them, Diana, just one of them. (laughs) You got plenty more left.
0: Yes. And so... I had this goal that I wanted to go walk the Caminos de Santiago in Spain, which is a 500-mile trek across northern spain and i wanted to take off two months of work to do that and it was one of those impossible goals i couldn't wrap my head around how i was even going to take off from work for two months i assumed i would have to quit my job and so in my mind if i have to quit my job i need to like make sure that's financially feasible for me to not work for two months and cover myself for i don't know how long it's going to take to get a job when i get back mind you i graduated college in 2009 great vintage And it was really hard to find a job after college. So my whole frame of reference, even though I graduated with a 4.0 on a full academic scholarship, I had work experience in my field. So my senior year of college, I worked full-time during the day and I went to school full-time at night. I was always an overachiever and I had that drilled into my brain too. If you do really well at school, then it'll be easy to find a job. And it still took me nine months after graduation to find a job. And so... I just had in my mind that this is going to be hard. And so I needed to financially prepare if I was actually going to take off for two months. So that kind of got me poking around online. How do you figure out your money? I knew I wasn't managing it well, but I didn't know what that meant either to manage it well. And everything that I found about getting out of debt and coming up with a budget and just the really good pillars of money management, it was all in this tone of struggle, this is going to be hard. You got to eat rice and beans. You've got to buckle down and sacrifice. And like the tone of deprivation was very unappealing to me because mind you, I was living it up in New York City in my 20s. I mean, I was spending two to $3,000 a month going out. I mean, I was a party animal. And so I was sowing my wild oats. It was a wonderful time, but I had nothing to show for it. And so when I discovered the FIRE movement, it didn't have this tone of struggle to it. It had this tone of you are sitting on an amazing opportunity. You are wasting this amazing opportunity. I really felt like I was wasting my privilege. Because an educated white woman in a first world country, and I'm living paycheck to paycheck, this was ridiculous. I was earning a fine income. It wasn't super impressive, but it was fine. It was enough for me to get out of that 30 grand of debt in 11 months and start saving and investing 60% of my income. And so I think that mindset shift was to realize that I am way less disadvantaged than I thought I was. I had an incredible opportunity in front of me and I had the freedom that people dream of. I didn't have any kids. I had all the time in the world to focus on increasing my income. I was single at the time, so I had no man distracting me. I kind of felt like I had the freedom that people dream of and I was wasting it. And so having my eyes open to the opportunity in front of me really motivated me to make some big changes in my life.
1: That is a great story. And you get me fired up. (laughs) But Diana, I have to be honest, when I feel in my body, when you talk about saving 60% of your income, I feel like a constraining, but you talked about this. It wasn't a struggle and that you were able to do this. Will you
0: describe how do you do this? That doesn't mean you're eating
1: ramen and saving every penny.
0: So, A lot of people, when they think about reducing their expenses, it feels like deprivation. And I think that requires a big mindset shift. I really got creative and resourceful about getting my needs met. And I think there's a huge difference between reducing your expenses because some external event imposes it on you. Like you have a loss of income and all of a sudden you've got to buckle down and not spend money now because it's a precarious situation it was all self-imposed. So it really felt like a grand experiment. And I was really following my curiosity on how do I get my needs met in the most resourceful and creative ways. So I'll give you some examples. I told you I was spending two to $3,000 a month going out. It was ridiculous, right? And it it's because I was buying lunch every day. And then I was going out for a happy hour and dinner every night.
1: New York will do that to you.
0: Oh, it will. And so I really investigated, did some soul searching on what was it that I was getting out of that, that I could do in a more resourceful way. And it was spending time with people. Like I loved my colleagues. I loved my friends. I wanted to see them as much as possible. I had so much fun going out with them. And so what I ended up doing is I made my apartment more fun than a bar. And I learned how to cook for eight people on 30 bucks. And then they would all bring the booze. And I would create these elaborate games that we would play together. I would spend a lot of time like curating the perfect group of eight people to sit around my dining room table in my tiny little apartment. I would throw these elaborate parties and invite all my neighbors. I lived in a building of 40 people, so I would invite them all so they wouldn't complain about the noise. This was me getting my social needs met, but in a much more economical way. Same thing with food, I was eating out a lot. So I just started cooking every meal that I ate and bringing my lunch to work. And I think the mindset shift around a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to cook for just me. It feels like such a hardship to have to cook every meal. I had to switch my mindset on that and say, this is a first world problem. The fact that I have access to a grocery store and that I'm physically able and capable to cook my own food should be celebrated. It shouldn't be seen as a hardship. And so I tapped into this level of creativity around cooking. And I got myself to the point to this day, I cook almost every meal that I eat and my food is better than what I can get in a restaurant. Humble brag. (laughs) I'm really good cook and other people get to enjoy it too, because i I still host dinner parties all the time. I still cook for everyone around me. I still invite all my neighbors over. Another thing is clothing. I've never been that much of a shopper. My thing was really going out, but I was surrounded by women that were way more fashionable than me. So I would host these clothing exchanges where everyone would clear out their closets, come to my house for an afternoon of like mimosas and music, and we would swap clothing. And I would walk away with a closet full of free clothes that were way better than I would ever buy for myself. And so all three of these examples, to me, are ways that are creative and resourceful in getting my needs met, but they actually turned out way better and way way more satisfying than just swiping the credit card on convenience. I had way more fun during those clothing exchanges than I ever did going on Amazon and looking for like a new dress. It's not just about reducing your expenses. It's almost like How do you do it in a way that is going to be even more satisfying so that it doesn't feel like deprivation? And then also approaching things with a degree of gratitude. If you are so grateful for the amazing material abundance that you already have, it curbs the desire for more. And that's a hard thing to do in our consumerist culture. But I've found for myself, it's just been game changing and being able to, again, save and invest 60% of my income.
2: And I love all these examples and you're really bringing this mindset change to life in the creativity you brought to it. Tell us what it was like as you were making these changes and you were beginning to see that credit card bill go down in balance and ultimately wealth being created.
0: I would say in the beginning, I was pretty extreme. I treated getting out of debt like my hair was on fire. And so it was every single dollar was monitored. And I was doing it all manually because I didn't want to automate anything because I wanted to build a level of mindfulness and awareness around my money that I never had before. And so by tracking all of my spending manually, by going into my accounts every two weeks and looking at my money, seeing how it compared to my budget, paying bills or paying towards the debt. Every two weeks when I was paid, I would go in and follow. I had a debt reduction calculator that would tell me every month, every two weeks, what I need to pay to what cards and what debt. And I would go in and do it manually. And it really made me hyper focused on my money. Now, as time moved on, I definitely have relaxed a lot more. I don't even budget anymore. i am been lazy about tracking my spending. But it's because I built the habits where I live way below my means. And so as you grow that gap between your income and your expenses, I feel like the hyper diligence becomes less and less necessary. And now you get to start to relax and feel peace around your money because you've got it in a place where you're not worried about overage charges or missing a payment, when you're not living paycheck to paycheck anymore, you feel a little bit more at ease around it. And now everything's automated. I look at it now in a different way because I've combined finances with my fiance, but that's a different scenario that I'm in. But I will say that I'm much more relaxed about my spending and I don't even do budgeting. Everything's automated. It's totally fine.
2: Diana, before we get into things with your fiance, I'm curious, based on what you were just sharing, what is the purpose of your wealth?
0: I think it's to create freedom and options. I think that I don't need more money. I need enough money. And once you solve the issue... Of money in your life and getting your money right, you can move on to other things. The questions I used to ask myself when I was figuring this all out is how do I reduce my expenses, increase my income, and grow that gap and invest that gap? And when am I going to reach my fine number? This is what I was hyper focused on when I started this journey. And now I'm asking myself, how do I want to spend my time? Who do I want to spend it with? What do I want to create in the world? I just think that money was such a hyper focus for me for so long. And now it's just a tool. It's just supporting freedom in my life. And I think so many of us want that material abundance that money can bring and will never experience the kind of time abundance, relationship abundance, creativity abundance. That is what can come into your life. I think when you're not so focused on the material abundance, I have bought time and space in my life. That is the purpose of my money. And now I work four hours of paid work per week. I just feel like I live a very luxurious lifestyle of freedom because I just don't have to worry about money anymore.
1: That is powerful. Diana, tell us more about your fiance. You mentioned coming into this relationship, having more assets, more income, And then you said it's flipped on the income side and you project that that will likely go back and forth throughout your life together. Describe how you two communicate around money.
0: I think so. We've been together for five years. I think in early on, it was very much like this is your money and this is my money. Everything was seen so separate. And he also has a 10 year old son. So I get to be a bonus mom to a 10 year old, which is really fun. And so I think we really took things very slow because when there's a kid involved, you want to be sure. And so we didn't move in together until three and a half years. So we've been now living together since the end of 2021. And so during this last year and a half, we have really had to experiment with what makes sense in the level of combining income and combining the way we look at money. And so... For me mentally, it's been especially with us getting married and doing estate planning and talking about prenups and all that kind of stuff. It's like, I've always looked at my money as my money. And I've never had to make decisions about money with another person. So that's like a huge learning for me. And now when I think about what we want to do together and the potential of a true partnership where it's not your money and my money, but it's our money. And if we look at it together, it's just the potential for that money grows exponentially. I've now seen the opportunity and it's really exciting to me. I did all of my financial modeling and deciding to quit my job and all of that. That was all based on like me and my dog. And I have this house that I own. So all of my financial planning and modeling was based on those circumstances. And now those circumstances are changing. And so I need to kind of reassess based on it's not just me anymore. It's us.
1: And do you do this together, this reassessment?
0: Yes. We actually use a tool called Monarch Money. It's a relatively new tool that we're using. It's kind of like an elevated version of Mint. And so all of our accounts are in there. And we have a joint checking account and a joint brokerage account, but then we each have savings accounts. So one of us is holding long-term savings goals, the money for the wedding and that kind of stuff. And then the other is holding the emergency fund. And then we came into the relationship in our 30s. So we already had separate investment accounts and all of that. So those are still all separate aside from the joint brokerage that we opened because it's attached to our joint checking. But we are able to look at it all together in Monarch money. So it shows us our collective net worth. It shows us where the inflows and outflows are going. And all the credit cards, all the investments, all the savings and checking accounts are in that one spot. And so it makes it easy for us to go in. And we each have separate logins. like It's full transparency. It used to be I was managing the money and then I was presenting it to him. And it's like, no, we both need to have full ownership over this. So we have two separate logins where each one of us can go in at any time and look at what's going on with the money. But we like to sit down collectively once a week and look at what did we spend money on this week? What are we happy about? What are we not happy about? And I'll tell you, the last two months, we feel like we spent too much. And we looked at our spending and we were like, you know what, this is too much. But we just went through a really hard time, a really hard five months. And we spent two months celebrating. In the grand scheme of things, we spent Maybe $4,000 more than we wanted to. In the context of our net worth, it is such a small percentage that it's not worth stressing about. But we talked about it. Being able to watch that spending caused us to talk about it and to process it and say, okay. We're not worried about it because our fixed costs are so low. Our mortgage is $600 a month and we don't have car payments and I cook every meal that we eat. So in the three biggest areas of most people's budget, which is housing, transportation and food, we are way optimized and living below our means. So when it comes to these one-off expenses that we went on a vacation and we went a little nuts, you know what I mean? I bought this Aura ring for $500, which is helping me figure out my sleep because I have a lot of sleep issues. And so when we think about where we spent money and did it align with our values, it did. So we don't have to feel bad about it, but we're going to pay closer attention moving forward because we can't be having an extra $4,000 every month. But it's easy to get back on track when your fixed expenses are so low.
2: I love that you're demonstrating the power of having these frequent money conversations with each other and checking in not only on the details, facts and figures, but is the spending level making us happy? Is it aligned with our goals? I think those are really powerful questions to be asking yourselves.
0: And it's really funny because there was one week was so blaringly obvious to us that it's all experimentation. So for example, we went out for my birthday in April and we had a $400 night because he wanted to take me to this fancy steakhouse. It was not worth the money.
2: I could make better
0: steak at home. Exactly. But then he's got a 22 year old, and for their birthday was in the same week. We had another $400 night where we took them out to dinner and we took them to this really fancy karaoke bar. That was worth every single penny. We created memories that night that we will remember forever. That was absolutely worth the money. It's all flexible and it's all fluid, and you just have to keep paying attention and keep talking. We're not going to feel bad about that $400 at the steakhouse. We're just never going to
2: go do that again. <laughs> yeah. So the context matters a lot. And I bet Priya Parker, she's listening, is very pleased. You're <laughs> really hearing <laughs> the art of your gathering and what makes getting together and, and optimizing not only time and activity, but money really important. Diana, tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with?
0: Oh, it's going to be about the wedding, I'm sure.
2: That's exciting. With whom?
0: With Brad, my Midwestern gentleman. Originally, we were not aligned on budget, but I'm an event planner. And so I know how much things cost. And it's really funny because I think in my younger years, what the budget I'm throwing around for this wedding, again, it's far below our means. We're not going to take out any debt for it. And we absolutely have the money. So it's not a big deal. But it would have been ludicrous in the past, the idea that I would spend this much money on a wedding because I don't really care that much about the wedding. I care more about the relationship and the marriage. And so I think we're going to be fairly reasonable, but I would rather just elope and not have a wedding if it was going to be really lame. You know what I mean? Like- going to do it. I'm an event planner. Like I'm going to do it right. Exactly. And it's going to be fairly small. We're only going to have 50 people. It's not going to be crazy, but weddings are expensive.
1: They are expensive. They're super special too. So I'm really excited for you and Brad. And really, Diana, thank you for sharing so much with us on Money Tales. Uh, Your stories are great. Your learnings, your missteps, all that that you brought to this conversation.
2: Thank you. Absolutely. And where can our listeners find you?
0: The best way to find me is to sign up for my mailing list because I am on social, but I don't play the algorithm game. So even if you follow me, you're like never going to see any of my stuff. <laughs> and so if you go to economyconference.com and that's economy with an M-E at the ends, not an M-Y, fun play on words. There you can sign up for my newsletter. I do host a yearly party about money for the FIRE movement. It is the only large scale event specifically designed for the FIRE movement. And that happens in March in Cincinnati. You can learn about that there, sign up for my list. And then I also host a daily podcast about money because clearly I like talking about this. It's called Optimal Finance Daily. And you can hear me read personal finance articles from popular bloggers. And then I offer about 300 words of commentary on every episode, 10 minutes or less every single day of the week.
1: Really great. Thank you so much, Diana. It was great to talk with you and we'll be following all that great work you're doing.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks for listening to the Money Tales Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to Asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.